Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. Good morning, everyone. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Ryan Kramer, and I have the privilege of serving here at Montrose Bible Church as an elder. And this morning marks our first week of Advent, a time where we make special note of who Christ is and the means he took to bring about our salvation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And our English word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And for the next four weeks, we'll be preparing our hearts to properly celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. And providentially, our current study in Philippians has led us to one of the most wonderful, wonderful displays of the person and work of Christ Jesus in all of Scripture. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And from this passage, we'll be studying the person of Jesus Christ, the humble and exalted Savior. And if you haven't found your way there already, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Once again, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which reads, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in regards to these verses, commentator Dennis E. Johnson says it well. This passage is, as we have observed a majestic mountain peak towering over the surrounding countryside. It's a pinnacle of theological truth, piercing the heavens and probing the mystery of the incar- incarnation. Its dramatic movement <clears throat> excuse me. Its dramatic movement traces the inverted arc of Christ's redemptive mission from divine glory down into humiliation and death, and then up again to heaven's height and resurrection splendor. These seven verses may have generated more scholarly comment and theological reflection than the other 97 verses of Philippians put together, and for good reason. This brief and beautiful text is one of the fullest, most explicit descriptions in the New Testament of the identity of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And as we look at verses 6 through 11 of chapter 2, our viewpoint today will not be from that of a microscope but rather from the perspective of a plane window 35,000 feet up, unable to see the finest of details, but enabling us to grasp the big, big picture laid out for us here by the Apostle Paul. And over the next three weeks, we'll be taking a closer look at the specifics of Christ's incarnation, death, and crucifixion, and exaltation. But for now, we'll be examining the attitude... <clears throat> Excuse me again. 
but for now we'll be examining the attitude Christ Jesus put on through all of these events. In Christ's, apologies, <clears throat> in Christ's mindset is visible for us to see in verses 6 through 11, but its most clear display is from the preceding verses in verses 3 through 4, which say, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, the one just mentioned, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And as we read these verses, it should cause us to realize that we need to be thankful that Christ was not inclined to resort to our natural default, which is spelled out for us in verse 3, one of selfishness and empty conceit. In church, before we move any further in our celebration of Advent, we need to be thankful for this most basic of truths. Christ came to us. And it seems almost redundant when said out loud because to celebrate Advent is to celebrate the coming. But we need to remember that Christ did not have to come down to earth as a man. Nobody forced him into it. He did it of his own free will. As we're told in John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And additionally, the son was not lacking or in want of something that he did not. His relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit was one of perfect love and harmony. His descent to earth would not be one of great gain for himself, but one of great cost. As seen clearly in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Thankfully, Jesus Christ did not act out of selfishness and empty conceit. No, as Christ does with so many other things, he completely flips the tables here. We, sinful humans, take every advantage that we were born into, are gifted with, and attempt to leverage it to advance our own cause and bring ourselves more glory. Paul's Greek lays it out plain as day. In our selfishness, we seek our own kinodoxia, our own vainglory. And the word he uses here is a combination of two words, kinos, empty, and doxa, glory. And as commentator David Garland states, the actions of Christ that we see in Philippians draw out these two words to quite a different effect. Christ emptied himself, kinoa, taking the form of a slave, and was exalted by God so that every tongue will acknowledge that he is Lord to the glory, doxa, of God. And this is the position of our Savior. From his birth in a manger to his death on a cross and every moment in between, we see the Savior of the world cloaked in humility. And we are able to see this from our text this morning. And as we look at it, we can ask ourselves these questions. What is Christ's attitude in his incarnation? Humility. Verses 6 through 7. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. What is Christ's attitude in his death? Humility. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And what attitude led to him being exalted by God the Father? Once again, humility. Hebrews 5, 7 through 8, along with verses 9 through 11 of our text, reveal this to us very clearly. Hebrews 5, 7 through 8 says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And returning to our text in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In church, as we see this magnificent, magnificent display of who Christ is and all that he did to accomplish our redemption, we should be inclined to be grateful, to sit back in awe and wonder over how low he stooped in order to save. And to think this way is to think rightly. The purpose of our lives should be to glorify God. That's what he made us for in the first place. As Isaiah 43, 6-7 says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. And yes, this Advent season, we need to praise God for sending his son. But we also need to be careful that we don't simply take the approach of fans sitting in the bleachers, cheering for our team as they grind it out through the mud, sweat, and effort. We need need to be cautious not to just celebrate the victory and then pack it up and go home. For Christ is not just a hero to be applauded, a distant memory to recall, or a trophy to be hung on the wall. He's the mediator of a new covenant. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our Lord, and as such, we, his servants, are called to follow after him. And while, granted, it's humanly impossible to follow or recreate the account that we see in Philippians, for one, we're unable to descend from heaven, We're not equal with God. We can't pay the penalty for the price of sin. And we won't be seated at God's right hand, being given the name that is above all other names. But what we can do is humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself. What we can do is, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves, as Christ did. We can look out for the interests of others more than our own interests, as Christ did. We can have this attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, as we read, study, and reflect on all that God did through his Son to bring about our salvation, stop, and yes, cheer. But more than that, follow. Follow the Spirit as he leads, and follow after the example that Christ Jesus 
gave for us. And this, this is the perspective that Paul wanted the Philippians to view this text from. To look to Christ as a shining example of what it looks like to live humbly. And this is why the words that comprise verses 6 through 11 made it into this letter. Paul didn't take a break from the purpose or intent of his epistle and then rabbit trail to talk about Christ's incarnation, death, and exaltation. No, it was placed here for a reason. And it's one the Philippians desperately needed to hear and one that we need to hear as well. And last Sunday, we saw Paul lay out his life an example of what it looks like to live for Christ. And now just a few verses over, Paul puts Christ's life on display as the ultimate example of humility. And then sandwiched right in between the two is an appeal to the Philippian church for godly conduct and unity. And as the writers of of the Expositor's Bible Commentary made note of, Paul is being strategic when he places his own experience in prison on one side of our text and the Lord Jesus' experience of suffering on the other. Paul's chain chains and Christ's cross set the context in which Paul's friends in in Philippi should process their own situation. And if you would turn your your Bibles once again to Philippians chapter 1 and we're going to take a look at verses 27 through chapter 2 verse 5. Once again, Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 which reads, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul knows what it is that his friends in Philippi are going through. And he doesn't give them some false means of hope, assuring them, that the persecution they're facing is going to go away and that they'll live out their lives here on earth happily ever after. No, if anything, he realizes that the persecution is most likely going to get more severe, not less. So he puts his own life on display and Christ's life on display to encourage and direct his friends. He's currently locked up in prison, but he's confident and hopeful that he'll be able to visit them again in person. But even if he doesn't get the chance and he must remain absent, he lets them know how they must conduct themselves. Verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And Paul's call for them is to live their lives in a way that is befitting of their heavenly citizenship. And then he cites for them the conduct of Christ, the one who descended from heaven. Christ Jesus provided the ultimate example of the attitude that we are to adapt as citizens of his heavenly kingdom. And the Philippians may have been granted Roman citizenship, but because of the work of Christ and their faith in him, they were now granted a citizenship that far outweighed that of Rome. Even though they were, by extension, part of Rome, they no longer needed to do what the Romans do. But instead, they needed to do what Christ would do. Jesus showed us how we are to pattern our lives. He left behind us a mold that we are to be shaped into. And through his example and the Holy Spirit's leading, we can rest assured that God plans to shape and mold us into the image of his Son. Romans 8.29 reminds us of this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And this, this is the conduct that Paul is after. This is the conduct that he wants the Philippians to embrace. One of humility and selflessness. But his intention is not for them to form some sort of competition to see who can get there the quickest. No, they are to move forward as one united group. You see, behind our English versions, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, is a single Greek verb that has citizen at its core. It's the word polytomai, and as Dennis Johnson's pointed out, in his call to arms, Paul draws upon two pictures that were near to the heart of everyone in Philippi, that of citizen and soldier. And as Paul continues on in verse 27, the imagery of a soldier remains at the forefront. And he uses two metaphors to introduce the second major theme of his letter. And as we have discussed and seen previously, the major theme that runs throughout the whole book of Philippians is that of joy. But we'll also begin to see from here on out a call to unity. And this is what he is after when he tells the Philippians that he hopes to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit and striving together for the faith of the gospel. And while these words may do little to steer our minds one way or the other, we can be certain that those in Philippi would have made an instant connection with what Paul was saying. And with just a little bit of historical context, we'll be able to arrive there as well. So some 2,000 years ago, after the Roman Civil War in 42 B.C., the victor of the battle celebrated by making the city of Philippi a military colony and settling some of his demobilized soldiers there. So when the people that are now residing in Philippi heard, stand firm and strive together, their minds would have gone to direct memories of battle or stories that they had heard firsthand from others. And while we have the disadvantage of only understanding the imagery of this metaphor by looking to history books and films, they would have had the advantage of actually living it out. You see, the battle formation that the Romans would have employed at this point in history was the phalanx. And this formation in our day has been made most famous by the movie 300, which was loosely based on the Spartans' army stand against the Persians at the Battle of Thermopylae. And while the armor and weapons may have changed some in the 400-year span 
from the Battle of Thermopylae to the time of Paul's letters to the Philippians, the phalanx at its core remained the same. Should be something on the screen. And as you can see, the strength of this formation <clears throat> relied on all men working together as one unit. Each warrior protected the one next to them with their shield. They didn't need to worry about themselves because those to their front and back, left and right, had them covered. In this cohesive body of troops, one battles. Soldiers, therefore, needed to stay in formation, whether attacking or retreating. And defeat could follow if one soldier broke ranks and allowed the enemy to pour through. And this, this is the imagery that Paul was after. One united group that was not just thinking of themselves, but fully relying upon one another. One united group that wasn't going to crack and turn upon each other as the pressure increased, but instead draw closer together. And he ensures them in verse 28 that they are not to be alarmed by their opponents because there will certainly be opponents. And also not to worry because God isn't aware, God is aware and in control of the situation. And once again, Paul does not give them a false hope that they will never come upon any difficulties in this life. On the contrary, he assures them that their suffering for the sake of Christ was always a part of God's plan for them. And verses 29 through 30 lay this truth out very clearly. It says, For to you has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experience experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You see, just as it was granted by God for them to have belief in Christ, so too it was granted by God for them to suffer for Christ. Paul's ensuring them that they cannot have one without the other. And as our English Bibles turn the page to what we see as chapter 2 of this letter, we're able to see this theme of unity flowing from one chapter to the other. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we see Paul laying out four incentives to unity. Verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. And some commentators see this as an appeal to draw encouragement from the triune God's involvement in your walk of faith with encouragement in Christ on one side and fellowship of the Spirit on the other, they see the second phrase, if there is any consolation of love, meaning the consolation of the Father's love. And whether or not this is a reference to the role that the Trinity plays in the life of the believer, there are still abundant reasons here to encourage unity among believers. For we can be assured that if we are to suffer for the sake of Christ— that we can find encouragement in Christ. We can take comfort in the fact that if we are in Christ, then we are loved by God. We can enjoy fellowship with other believers because of the Spirit's work in our lives. And we can experience affection and compassion from the God who saved us and from those in our faith family. And Paul knows that all of these things are provided to those that are in Christ. And he's not asking the Philippians to compose a checklist and see what percentage of these items they've come across in their own lives. No, he's telling them to remember them, to take advantage of them, 
and then put them into play so that they may make my joy, the Apostle Paul's, complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And God knows that you will face hard times and sufferings. In fact, he's actually granted that you suffer for the sake of Christ. But he never intended for you to go at it alone. He'll be there with you through the struggle, and he's given you a new family to lean on and rely upon during the fight. So stop trying to go at it alone because that was never part of the plan. Suffering is going to come your way, but don't turn on and attack those who are in the battle with you. Draw close. Become united with one mind, one love, one soul, and one purpose. And this is how the Philippians are to march ahead and face the trials that are in front of them. In unity. Packed so closely together, just like the Roman soldiers in their battle formation. But how is it that they are to arrive at such a place of unity? How can they come to trust their brothers and sisters in Christ to such an extreme level? They must have formulated a plan, rounded up a committee, and assigned tasks to each member of the church. No. Paul had a much better plan in mind for them all. Hey, Philippians, you want to know how to become this tight-knit of a group? Leave the plans of men behind and follow the example of your Savior. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that the church turned on each other when the outside pressure increased, that they would tear themselves apart, and there would be no church left. So he cites the greatest example of humility that the world has ever seen, Jesus Christ. He puts the Son of God on display and tells his friends to follow after the example of Christ. Pattern your lives after the humility of the one who existed in the form of God, who was in very nature God, yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not leverage his situation out of selfishness or empty conceit, but instead he looked out for the interests of others more than himself. And yet again, we see Christ humbling himself by coming to earth and taking the form of a servant. We would think that the creator of our world would arrive on the scene in a palace destined to be served, but instead we find him in a manger destined to serve. Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as if this wasn't enough, Christ humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death. But not just any death. No, the most brutal and humiliating way men could think of for one to die. Death on a cross. Not looking to what he could gain for himself, but what he could gain for others. He humbled himself so that sinners like me and you might have a chance to have our slates wiped clean, to be forgiven of our sins, freed from the weight and the guilt, adopted into God's family, and given an inheritance in heaven that we have no right to claim. And this is what Christ gained for those that put their faith and trust in him. And because of his humble obedience, he was also 
able to gain glory for his father. Verses 9 through 11. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And friends, you'll never find a greater display of humility. As one commentator states, excuse me, as three weeks in a row is too much, voice is falling apart. All right. As one commentator states, Jesus Christ reveals the nature of God, but also exemplifies the attitudes Paul wants the Philippians to adopt. If Christ did not please himself, but gave his life a ransom for others, his followers should not please themselves, but should conform to the mind of their Lord. Since he humbled himself, how can they be proud? Since he took the form of a slave, how can they seek to dominate others? Since he accepted the greatest dishonor, death on a cross, how can they strive after honors? And now that we've seen it and heard it, maybe for the hundredth time, maybe for the first, what are you going to do with it? And for those of us that belong to Montrose Bible Church, we should be seeking to pattern our lives after the example of Christ. For this is the only way to become a church that is united in mind, love, spirit, and purpose. It's the means that God has revealed to us on how to draw closer together and thrive under pressure. And for all of us individually, if you haven't done so already, take advantage of the opportunity you've been given by Christ to get right with God. Don't do it tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. Do it now while you have the chance. There's no greater purpose that you could become a part of and no greater person that you could surrender your life to. Bend your knee and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord over this world and Lord over your life. Because as we've read, a time's going to come when everyone's going to confess this same truth anyway. So why not do it now and reap the benefit of living out the rest of your eternity in the presence of God rather than being separated from him? And friends, as we look to Christ this Advent season, let's make sure that we aren't a church who merely praises Jesus with our lips, but that we praise him with our lives. Let's be a people that live up to the call in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Let's be that people. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We just thank you for your word. Thank you for its richness and its depth, Lord. And uh, come to you this Advent season and just thank you for the example we have um, in Jesus Christ, your son. We want to be thankful for all that he accomplished for us and for coming down to earth and the means that he provided for our salvation, Lord. But we don't want to just sit back and clap our hands and, and say thank you. 
merely with our lips, Lord. We want to recognize what he did and surrender our lives fully over to you. And may you help us do that. May you help us be a people that draw closer and closer to your son and that we continually be conformed into his image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org. 